0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Quinn Cummings Gives Bad Advice, the podcast where I, Quinn Cummings, give advice to people I do not know. If you're joining us for the first time, you may be asking yourself, does Quinn really want to give me bad advice? And the answer is no, I do not want to give you bad advice. I want to give you good advice. But I have absolutely no qualification to give you any sort of advice at all. I am not Joe... I am not Meg, I am not Amy. I give advice because it amuses me to do so. So you might be asking yourself, will this advice I'm about to give you be good advice? Well, I think the answer is in the title of the podcast. If you want me to give you bad advice, you can leave a question for me at qcbad.com. It's completely anonymous and better yet, it's completely free so I can offer up this advice with a 100% money-back guarantee. Now, let's get started. My first question comes from QCBad.com. Subject, relationship with daughter. Dear Quinn, I have a 28-year-old daughter who I love dearly, but she refuses to meet or speak to my present spouse. I've had a few marriages under my belt. One before her mom, two after. Do I give up? Or, to use the vernacular, keep hammering? I think she has heard the phrase, I've met someone new and I'm finally really happy it's going to be different this time from you maybe once too often. To you, understandably, this feels different. To her, Understandably, it looks like more of same. What this needs is time. Show her you aren't going anywhere, that you have finally learned how to pick someone and stay in a relationship. She might soften, or she might not. 28 is an adult, for better and worse. Every extended family has a story about two otherwise reasonable adults who didn't speak for years over something everyone else would have described as nonsense. She is telling you where her boundary is now. Respect it. Love her. Love your spouse. Keep showing up for both and see where you are in a year. My next question comes from Twitter. Dear Quinn, What is the best response to my mother-in-law, who has twice come up behind me when I was bending over and said, There's a tempting target. I think she was trying to be funny, but twice? It feels creepy. We live in the same house, so this may, probably will, happen again. P.S. If it matters, I'm 52 and she's 82. Yes. The age does matter because if she's newly blurting out vaguely inappropriate things, this might be an indication of an underlying health issue. How long has it been since she had a physical? If it's been longer than six months, it might be worth a trip to the doctor. This one comes from QCBad.com. Subject, Can I Just Turn It Off? Dear Quinn, I work in PR. I'm required to be upbeat and on during the week. When the weekend comes around, I just want to decompress and lay around. How do I nicely tell my family and friends that I want to be left alone without them thinking something is wrong with me? Best, Greta Garbo, Light. Greta, I am so on your team. I have one life partner who works away from home, a child away at college. I write my strange little adventures at home by myself. And so people who care about me inform me I'm not seeing them and they worry about my well-being. Your non-smiling weekend time isn't negotiable. It's what keeps you from beating clients to death during the week. But mental health professionals assure me we must see people who care about us, if for no other reason than someone should notice when they haven't heard from you in a while. I am nearly completely certain my death will be discovered by a police officer because a neighbor will notice my mail is stacking up. The medical examiner will announce that puddle of fluid is me. Anyway, here is my suggestion. Each weekend, you're going to have one or two errands. So you say to a friend... I'm going to Target, and then I'm getting the oil changed in the car. Come shop with me, and then we can have coffee while the oil thing is going on. First, this is a date with a time span, which means you can promise yourself plenty of decompressing for the week ahead afterwards. Second, you are saying to your friend, I miss you, and I want to see you, which is true. And even if she can't do this particular get-together, she knows you are trying to make it happen. Something to consider. I wonder if, on a tiny, tiny level, you aren't a little worried something is wrong with you. Let me explain. What you have charted for yourself is five days a week of basically playing a role, and two days a week hiding and waiting to play the role again. That's a reasonable temporary solution. But if you're planning on staying in PR, You are tacitly agreeing that this will be your life. So for the rest of your working life, glorified strangers will get a fake version of you, which drains you, and the people who love you won't see you. That sounds kind of unsustainable. It also sounds a little depressing. Is it possible part of what you hear your loved one saying is resonating with you because you know life should be better than this? It's his thought. I'm probably wrong. Anyway, invite them to Target. Dear Quinn, I'm going through a traumatic divorce. My husband behaved, uh, is behaving, really, really horribly. But everyone thinks he's a nice guy, except my inner circle, who knows? I'm having trouble staying friendly with anyone who is still friendly with him, especially if they know bits of what happened. I'm really stuck just not replying to people because I don't know how to deal with this aspect. Any ideas? Yes. One of the more subtle pleasures of a breakup is finding out that somehow, unbelievably, your ex is a far, far greater jackass than you ever imagined. Many people will disappoint you. Currently, many people are disappointing you but they fall into two groups. Those who know bits of what happened and are choosing to remain his friend for reasons not interesting enough for you to investigate, and those who don't know he is the emperor of jackasses and are just those well-meaning people who say things like, oh, I don't want to take sides. These groups are handled differently. If they know a bit of his behavior and are fine with him and how he has treated you, they have now told you who they are. Thank them, but only in your mind, because there is no reason to talk to them. Perhaps they will someday realize the error of their ways. Perhaps not. This is not your concern right now. The both sides people are harder because you have to consider them on a case-by-case basis. Is one friend still talking to him? which makes you nuts because she's a really good friend of yours, but this is also your most optimistic friend, and you suspect she's just being her good-hearted self, and also she gave you a kidney? Obviously, she stays in your life. And if he comes up, you say blandly, I don't have to talk or think about him anymore, which is what you now say to everyone. If any friendships can't move beyond this perfectly reasonable request, well, now you know. A divorce is like an x-ray. You see everyone's bones. Some bones are gross. Dear Quinn, I started posting poetry to an amateur site in April. It's nice to have a community to share poems with, because honestly, no one in my life wants to read my poetry. The problem is, at least one of my poems has been stolen, which I know is my fault for posting them and not protecting them. I don't have the time to enforce my copyright. I have two kids and work while they're at school. Writing poetry is a small present I give to myself. I don't have the funds to hire someone else to do my copyright work for me. I emailed a swimsuit designer who was using my poem on a Facebook post for her line. She took it off Facebook and added my name to her Instagram post, but didn't respond to my email or apologize. It almost seems too late to do anything because there are a number of people also using it. What should I do? As Stephen Sondheim, another poet, said, Isn't it nice to know a lot and a little bit not? The Internet is a big place filled with the best and the worst of humanity. It's also filled with a fair amount of thieves who go there because of the very bigness of it. Large clothing companies steal from small Etsy designers, are caught, continue. The fight is probably a little futile. That does not, however, mean you should not fight, because it is your work. And while we cannot protect our work as artists every second of the day, we can put up basic guardrails. Think of it like this. You have children. The world will do what it does to them. But you make sure that they are seat-belted in every time you all get in the car. Also, when you protect your work, you are showing your children that it is important to stand up for yourself, which is never not an object lesson we should be teaching to our kids. Now, you're busy, and who wants to spend $35 to copyright each poem? I get it. I have a thought. Write your poems, put them out there. Whenever you have a manageable amount of poems, some number that makes sense to you, create a document, copyright that. From what I just read in copyright law, I believe that will protect each poem as well as the whole document. Ask someone who's a lawyer. I am not a lawyer. Then if that works, at least when you write to people, you will have the law on your side. Everyone will still be gross, it's the internet, but perhaps you would like to speak to my lawyer about copyright law is a statement that focuses even the most light-fingered mind. Good luck. My next question comes from Twitter. Dear Quinn, How do I find a relationship that's more meaningful than a fuckboy that doesn't involve paying an online dating app? I checked your bio. You are a proud alum of two schools with a huge old boy network. Eh, old girl? No, that's much worse. Anyway, see if there are alumni get-togethers. See if there are people in your work who are doing interesting things, people you want to know, people who should know about you. Because here's the thing. You can't run a dating head-on. You just spook it. No. Dating is remarkably like a house cat. If you have ever been around an unfamiliar cat, you know the best way to get its attention is to not care. No eye contact, no baby talk. Cool indifference. Perhaps a hand right where a cat might sniff it, but whatever, you don't care. You are meeting F-boys because you are in places where they have the leverage. Book Suggestion. Read Datanomics, where an economist uses his training to try to figure out why there is inequity in dating. It's incredibly illuminating. But in the meanwhile, your job is not to find less trifling men, because then you're running straight at dating, and then you're going to spook it again. Your job is to discover new things you find interesting. A sport, a language, uh, parts of your job creating the perfect decorative ball of cheese. The men you are meeting right now are not worthy of your passion, so put your passion someplace where it will be rewarded. As it happens, when you're newly invigorated and energized, worthy people are more likely to show up. Worthy people have worthy friends. And then you can throw a cocktail party with all your new friends pass around a cheese ball you have created, say something clever in German, and watch your dating luck change because you do not care. This one comes from QCBad.com. Subject, I want to write a book no one will read. Dear Quinn, I have been a journalist and a PR person But now I want to write a book. The problem is that none of my book ideas are marketable, or so say my friends. Should I just write my book anyway for the heck of it? No one should ever write a book to make money because, statistically, it won't. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about marketability. We're talking, is this an elevator pitch which gets you on NPR, which sells your books? No. Here are a few other reasons not to write a book. Don't write a book to make someone else happy. Or to make someone else angry. Well, okay. I personally enjoy reading a book which exists solely to settle scores. But I am superhumanly petty, and I will admit it is not a good reason. There is only one reason to create something— You cannot comfortably live in a world without that thing for even a single day longer. This goes for art, this goes for children, this goes for flan. Sit down, switch on the computer, and write because the book is shouting until you bring it into being. And then, invite me to the book party. Dear Quinn, I'm living a lie, and I don't know how to get out of it. I'm three years in, but I'm tired of claiming to be something I'm not. What should I do? Wow. I'm at a disadvantage because I don't know the magnitude of the lie. Are you lying about being a redhead? Or are you lying about being a neurosurgeon? Is this an awkward conversation with everyone you know? Or is this a felony? My answer would be obviously quite different. But as the title of the podcast teaches us, I'm going to dive in anyway. I think whether it's a large or a small lie, you begin the same way. You look at someone, perhaps someone who isn't attached to your main friend group so you can practice without it becoming gossip immediately, and you say, what you know about me is wrong and I want to tell you the truth. And then you tell them and you weather whatever blowback comes from this person's trust in you having been, at the very least, shaken. And then you do this again and again. And I'm not sure it gets easier because you're going to be telling people you have betrayed them. You keep your answers simple. If you know why you lied, tell them. If you don't know why you lied, tell them. The truth can be awkward, But going forward, it is your personal God, and you answer only to it. Now, if this lie you have been living has some level of legal complexity, before any of this happens, you talk to a lawyer. If this is a social lie, get to work. Will you lose friends? Probably. People don't like being betrayed. For years. So, tell the truth. Take your lumps, start rebuilding trust where you can, and maybe find a professional who can help you figure out why you needed to lie like this to begin with. Okay, I think that's enough bad advice for today. And remember, I can't give you bad advice if you don't ask for it. Your question doesn't have to be profound, complex, or emotionally demanding. It can be about pretty much anything because, let's face it, I am unqualified to offer advice across a wide range of subject matter. And as we all know, sometimes the nuttiest question gets the best bad advice. You can reach me on Twitter at Quincy. That's Q-U-I-N-N-C-Y at twitter.com. Or you can post a question to QCBad.com. Just log into letter Q, letter C, B-A-D, dot and there's a question form right there. The question can be any length, but I'm finding they work better if they're shorter. Just a hint. Before I go, I'd like to thank Richard Emmett, who composed my groovy music, and Keith Greenstein, who designed my groovy logo. People have already started asking me how they can get a bad advice fork in a toaster t-shirt or coffee mug, and my answer to them is, hang in there, we are working on it. I also want to thank Phil Roar and Prime Productions for making it possible for you to hear any of this. Okay, that's enough for now. Keep those questions coming, and I'll see you all next time.